0: A seagull. It flies in, eats something, poops all over everybody, and then flies out. Some people think a seagull is like a consultant. We introduce ancillary revenues to the airline industry. But a good consultant can be a huge help to your business. For the person on the street, that bag fees. You need to hire someone. Can you do it yourself?
1: So if you're interviewing somebody, you really shouldn't look at Facebook.
0: Should you do it yourself?
1: And at the same time, that particular candidate shouldn't have their whole life open for the world to see either.
0: Your computer is being stupid. So call a guy who can fix your computer from his house.
2: Biotech companies, when they start up, they've got three or four people. They don't need an IT guy. They need someone to just come in, set up the servers, set up the network. They'd be crazy to have a full-time guy to do that. He'd be bored to tears. How many times are you going to reset someone's Outlook password before you want to shoot yourselves?
0: This is the Language of Business, a weekly podcast designed to inform and inspire entrepreneurs and anyone thinking about a startup learn about strategies that work and strategies that don't work. I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Our host is Greg Stoller, Harvard MBA and senior lecturer at Boston University Questrom School of Business. On this episode, we look at dealing with consultants. Here's Greg Stoller.
3: Thanks, Don. Consultants are often maligned as being expensive, hired guns that deal with your company at an arm's length. But on the flip side, you won't be a successful entrepreneur without knowledge in a critical business specialty. John Thomas is a managing director at LEK Consulting and has nearly a quarter century of experience as a strategy expert, and he's been credited by the Boston Globe as saving the commercial airline industry. John, welcome. Great to be here. So let's start with the obvious question. What did
4: you do that saved the commercial airline industry? Really, two things. The first thing is that we were instrumental in a lot of the consolidation that's happened in the industry. The merger between Delta and Northwest, obviously followed by the merger between United and Continental, and the merger between American and US Airways. But that consolidation has taken a lot of the excess capacity out of the industry that was unprofitable for the industry. So that was the first thing. The second thing is we introduced ancillary revenues to the airline industry. For the person on the street, that is bag fees. So I apologise for the bag fees, but bag fees and all of the other add-ons that can, let's say, enhance your travel experience now accounts for about $12 billion of highly lucrative revenue to the US airline industry each year. Enhancing the experience for the airline companies or for the passengers? For both. Historically, when the airlines ate the full cost of carrying the bags, it was regarded as a cost center, and so the airlines, because they didn't have any spare cash, wouldn't invest in their bag technology. Now that they charge for bags, and bags have now turned into a profit center, it's actually rational for them to invest in their technology.
3: With business dynamics changing so quickly, how do you change your consulting approaches, both on a short-term and a long-term basis?
4: We're in the business of solving problems for our clients. That could be examples of introducing a new product, helping them distribute their product better, improving on their operational performance, et cetera. So an issue will happen. I mean, we've got a good example where we're talking to an airline at the moment where they had an operational issue that caused a lot of flight cancellations in December. It's an airline in a different geography. And they got hit with a $3 million fine for that dislocation. And they want us to come in and say, what can we learn from from the mistakes that we had through that dislocation. So sort of lots of short-term issues. On the longer-term issues, a lot of that relates to companies that see their market share declining and they get us to come in and say, well, look, we think we need to change our business model. What's happening in the marketplace? What are the different customer segments? want? how are competitors uh, meeting the needs of those customer segments? How should we be adapting our business model to those? And a good example in the airline industry was the onslaught of the low-cost carriers. And everyone kept saying, well, look, the legacy carriers are doomed, only low-cost carriers will survive. And a lot of airlines were bringing us in, mind you, they were, uh, they were in Chapter 11 at the time, saying, when we come out of Chapter 11, how should our business model change to allow us to be more competitive against the low-cost carriers? How about if you're consulting to an entrepreneur as opposed to an established company? There's a lot of things that uh, an entrepreneur uh, needs sort of when they're setting up a company. Firstly, it's just sort of a broader skill set. Lots of entrepreneurs have a great sort of, you know, they'll bring a new product or bring a new technology to market. That's only part of the issue. It's how do I sell it? How do I price it? Do I need to partner with an existing player? So there's a lot of other issues where we can help sort of bring that capability and skill set. So that's the first one. The second one is small companies just don't have a lot of resources and you may have a short-term need just to bring in uh, capability to help you. A good example is if you're a small company and you acquire another company, I need short-term capability to integrate the acquired company into my existing company. So that's a that's another example. And then finally in terms of the entrepreneurs, one of the things that we do a lot of is helping them develop their business plan. So what market does this address? How can you grow the revenues of your concept or your product? What are the economics as you grow the the product over the next couple of years? But importantly, put that into a business plan that they can then take to either a private equity firm or to their banks, etc. And because it's sort of got our stamp of approval on it, they actually have a much easier job in terms of raising finance for their business plan than if they sort of just go to a private equity firm by themselves.
3: John, you've been consulting for 25 years to your clients, but yet they've been managing their own companies for 25 years. Do you think over time they'll be able to catch up to you in terms of their industry knowledge?
4: Uh, Greg, they've caught up and gone well, well beyond. But I mean, seriously, the notion of bringing consultants in purely for the skill set is just one aspect. A company will be going through a decision-making process and they may have reached loggerheads where one part of the organization has a particular view and the other has a diametrically opposed view. And it's very difficult for a CEO or a board to sort of act as the arbiter between the two divisions. So call us the four guys, but I mean, it's a very valid role that we come in is we're independent. We don't bring any baggage. Let us sort of in the cold, harsh reality of the day, analyze the situation and work out what is the best approach forward, which may not necessarily make everyone happy, but we think is the right for the organization. That's the first one. Second one is a lot of our clients are making sort of make or break decisions. And we think good corporate governance, but also the fiduciary responsibility of directors is to bring in a third party to say, look, it's not that I don't trust management. Management have done a great job but boy this is a big decision I'd really like someone else just to give me their opinion as to whether we're heading in the right direction and I think the third aspect is because we're not in the thick of it we've got the luxury of sort of we're unencumbered where we can sort of sit back and say look Are there any storm clouds coming that are going to impact our clients? And we should be taking ideas to them and saying, this is how you can alleviate what could happen from the storm cloud. And in fact, it's funny, a lot of our clients call us the idea guys, because whenever we meet with them, they're sort of saying, "Okay, well, I wouldn't be satisfied unless you bought me some (laughs) new ideas. So, I mean, it's It's, it's a good discipline for us, because we can't rest on our laurels of sort of helping them in the past. They sort of only judge us on the latest ideas that we bring them. Thanks, John. You're welcome, Greg. John Thomas, Managing Director at L.E.K. Consulting.
0: Coming up, your computer is acting stupid. So who do you call? A guy who can fix your computer from his home. But first, you need to make a hire. Can you do it yourself? Should you do it yourself? Back to the language of business and Greg Stoller. Thanks, Don. Julie Marcus is a
3: market research professional who specializes in executive search, competitive intelligence, and business development. She's been in this line of work for over 20 years, but when it comes to finding top talent, is it worth paying those fees? Why not just use LinkedIn, even if it takes you a little bit longer to eventually find those same great hires? Julie is joining us from New York and welcome to the Language of Business. Thanks, Greg, glad to be here. With LinkedIn and all of these other online services being so commonplace, Why is headhunting still an old-fashioned, reliable way of finding people?
1: Because you still need to speak to people to find out what their skill sets are, what the cultural fit is to an organization, and what makes them different than somebody else. A computer program doesn't identify the right person for the job.
3: So is it fair to say that somebody's entire life is not an open book and is not on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook?
1: For most people, that is very true. There is that small percentage of people who put everything up on all of those sites, but Facebook is more personal. So if you're interviewing somebody, you really shouldn't look at Facebook. And at the same time, that particular candidate shouldn't have their whole life open for the world to see either. If you went on a trip to South Africa, that's fine to highlight. If you have philanthropic activities that you like to highlight, that's fine. But not that you, you know, spend the weekend throwing back beers with your buddy at some game. I think that people want to see that someone's professional, even though we know that you have an outside life. But being professional and always being appropriate, I think, is what people look for.
3: From the applicant's perspective, why would they choose to use someone like you as opposed to another consultant or another firm?
1: Well, usually the way it works in executive recruiting, the client, usually the company, hires the executive recruiter. And it's the recruiter's responsibility to go out into the marketplace and find candidates that would be appropriate for the job, skill set-wise and culture-wise and whatever other specifics that the client may want. There are companies that you can hire as an individual to find your job, but you're usually told not to do that. It's a little suspect.
3: The focus of this segment is companies using consultants. Outside of time concerns, could a company more effectively do its executive search or competitive intelligence on its own without needing to hire you or pay your fees?
1: Many companies are making the financial investment to build their own internal executive search functions and their own business intelligence functions. They've made the financial commitment, the human capital commitment. There's buy-in from senior management. There still is and will always be a need for executive search professionals because some companies don't want to do that, or they really want to have a search that is really confidential and they don't want anybody internal to know about it. So it's really a mixed bag. I mean, there are several companies that do internal executive search quite well, And there are companies that are still figuring it out. For executive search firms, the value that they bring is that they're always out in the marketplace. And they have a pulse on what's going on and what the changes are and who's doing what and the successes, the failures that are constantly going on in business. Internally, sometimes what happens is you're so busy on all your internal projects, you don't necessarily have the time or the ear to the ground to hear what's going out on the street. So I think it's important when you have an internal that you find the time to do and gather your information, but as the external, you provide a lot of value in that you know what's going on the street, you know all the people that are out there, and you can bring a different perspective to a search. So I think there are two answers to the question, and it's what a company feels comfortable with.
3: If you're retained for your executive search functions or your competitive intelligence functions, what is your real value add to the process as a consultant outside of a couple of young people just doing twice as much work as you might be doing by using the Internet?
1: Well, I think the Internet, like everything else, they're just tools. And you have to be able to manage all those tools to get the best results. And it's knowing the questions to ask. And if you don't know, it's still trying to find out what is it that you don't know. Because we don't know everything. So I think it's really important for people to ask. You can search the Internet, but it doesn't mean you're always going to get the right information from a valued source. A lot of people put a lot of things on the Internet. Some of it is valid and some of it is not.
3: How involved do you get with the process?
1: The search firm will listen to what the client wants and then they will suss out what the priorities are for the job. Is there any kind of change that's going to happen in management? Is there any kind of succession planning that's needed? And all the particulars, what's the volume they may be responsible for, their headcount? what's the organization looks like. So the search firm will help the client suss out all those details. From there, the search firm will then identify potential candidates, either for benchmarking purposes, to see, you know, is this person right, this skill set, that skill set, or is there a specific school they like? And from there, the list is built from target companies, target candidates, people are interviewed, and then the list is dwindled down to a top couple, and then they're presented to the clients. Does a
3: company receive a partial refund if a candidate they hired that you sponsored doesn't last more than six months or a year?
1: Most executive search firms, the fees are split into thirds. And there is that time period if someone does not last, it could be six months or nine months, and that search firm has to redo the search. Usually, there's no money given back.
3: Thank you, Julie. Julie Marcus from New York, who's an executive search specialist.
0: Still to come, a guy who can fix your messed up computer from his home. When the language of business continues. Our sponsor is Art Lifting. If you have a small business, or even if you run a Fortune 500 company, you can uplift the look of your office with Art Lifting. Art Lifting has over 1,300 artworks in a variety of styles and prices. You can buy them or rent them and switch them up on a rotation every month or so. But wait, there's more. All of the Art Lifting art is by artists who are homeless or dealing with disabilities. So you not only brighten and uplift your office, you're helping local communities across the USA. To learn more and view the collection, go to ArtLifting.com. You're listening to the Language of Business look at dealing with consultants. One more time, here's Craig. Thanks, Don. Welcome back to the Language of
3: Business. We're headed to Pembroke, Massachusetts to visit with Day State IT. They offer services they believe are better than what you'll get in most in-house IT departments. And most of the work can be done remotely, so you don't even have to leave your office in order to get your computer fixed. Their CEO and founder is Sean Sanker, and Sean, welcome to the Language of Business.
2: Thank you. What services would an IT department provide that you couldn't be able to match? So I think we pride ourselves on being able to provide full services, whether it be a network guy, a server guy, or a desktop guy. You know, the issue is whether or not you can warrant having a full-time guy on staff. We do our biotech companies. When they start up, they've got three or four people. They don't need an IT guy. They need someone to just come in, set up the servers, set up the network, set up a few desktops for them. And, you know, that would be crazy to have a full-time guy to do that. He'd be bored to tears. So we come in, we'll do all that work, and then we set up as needed after that for desktop support. They want to add another server, they call us in, and we take care of it.
3: What is a network guy and what is a Unix guy?
2: Network guy would be the guy that sets up your firewall. He's setting up your network switches, determines how the equipment talks to each other, sets up your VPN. If you want to be able to work from home, if you have multiple locations that you want to connect securely as if you're on the same network, he's going to configure that stuff. The Unix guy is a guy that will come in and he'll do our work on, say, Ubuntu or Fedora or Red Hat servers. He'll also do our database work. The likelihood of you needing a full-time guy that's going to do that is very, very low, unless you're a huge company. Or 300 people, you're just not going to need a dedicated database guy. So, almost everyone's going to contract out your database guy, even your Unix admin. So, if network and Unix isn't full time, what do most of your staff do? Most of my staff are desktop support. So, we have two guys that are full time server guys, but they will do a lot of desktop support as well. Inevitably, there's going to be someone that's going to say, Hey, you know, my Outlook's not working today, or Gee, I'm not quite getting the wireless signal I should be getting. And, you know, one of the guys that is doing a server support call that day, will help out. You know, most of the guys that are in IT, they start out doing desktop support, and then they start learning more and more server stuff. They graduate, so they have those desktop skills, but they now, you know, graduate and they like to do the server stuff. It's more interesting probably to do the server support than how many times you're going to reset someone's Outlook password, you know, before you want to shoot yourself.
3: How do you tend to retain your staff, especially if they've been working with one of your clients who might have been a biotech startup, now they're six, nine months into it, what is the temptation to not work for that company full-time as opposed to staying with you?
2: We have a clause in our contracts that we sign where the clients can't hire those guys away. We've had that happen in the past because that's a serious temptation, right? Their client is really likes working with this technician, and gee, wouldn't we like to have him full-time? We could pay him maybe seventy grand a year instead of paying base-state IT X dollars per hour. You know, we incentivize our clients not to do that by writing into the contract that they can't do that. We don't pay any of our technicians minimum wage. They're all making a good amount of money, and I like to think of myself as a good boss, and they like working for us. So. What do you do if you run into problems you can't fix? Generally, the problems that we can't fix would be a situation where we're going to be calling the vendor. For instance, a Microsoft Server problem, you can get a Microsoft Server Engineer on the phone. Now, granted, you have to pay per service call for that. But if there's something that we can't fix, we're usually calling the hardware vendor or the software vendor. In your business, did you ever hire a consultant? We've run our business from day one off of QuickBooks for Mac. In the beginning, we didn't know how to use QuickBooks. I'm a computer guy that knows how to use the operating system. I know a lot about the hardware I know how to install an operating system. But as far as you know, setting up billing and setting up the appropriate categories where expenses have to go in, I had no idea. So I had to hire a consultant for that, and he was able to train us on how to do that. And then we'd have periodic visits to make sure that we were doing the right thing.
3: If you have to purchase software products or pay for service calls or even hardware products, is that something you absorb, or is that something that's automatically passed on to the client?
2: If we have to pay for software in the form of, say, data recovery, do data recovery, that's a software that we'll purchase, and that's just built into the cost of doing business. Uh, If we're purchasing software that's going to go on the client machines, clearly we're passing that cost on to the business that we're working for. Realistically, there's not too much that we have to buy, except for maybe our remote control software, that we we pay a yearly fee for that, and that's just built into the business. It's not too much money. We're talking about maybe a couple thousand dollars a year for that remote control software
3: describe what remote really means. Outside of hardware repair, can everything be done remotely or is there some stuff that you need to be there in person for?
2: There are some things that we'll do remotely. A lot of things that pile up, we'll usually send someone on site because we will like to get them on site to go from Jim to Jane to Sally to take care of all the issues. It's a little easier than trying to call the user, get a remote session started if we're going to work for four or five people in the organization that day. But for simple things, you know, resetting a password, helping a user find a button that they can't seem to find. You know, I can't tell you how many times you say, no, click there. Well, do you see up there? And if I can take over your mouse, I'm able to show you very quickly, oh yeah, here's the checkbox that you were missing the check.
3: How would you differentiate Baystate IT from other companies that are doing similar things, also
2: as part-time IT consultants? I like to think that we've chosen technicians in the industry that are very personable. So you get a lot of people that they want to shove their IT perspective and their rules down your throat. Clients don't really want to work with someone that's making them do something that maybe they don't want to do. You can gently prod them, you can give them best practices, and then work with them on a compromise of how they want to work in their own environment.
3: What are your three to five-year goals for Bay State IT as the CEO and founder?
2: We've just added a fifth full-time employee. Our goal would be to get up to about 10 people, I would say, in about five years, and to grow the business. So my son's about 16. He's expressed interest in taking over once I get to retirement age. So growing the business to a point where he'd be able to take over and you know, have a nice flourishing business. Thanks, Sean. You're welcome. Sean Sanker, CEO and founder of Bay State IT here in Pembroke, Massachusetts.
0: Thanks, Greg. And that's our episode this week. You can find links to all the people and companies we've interviewed on the show notes. We now have downloads in 40 countries. Welcome to Paraguay, or in Spanish, Paraguay. And in 32 states, welcome to Kentucky, the home of bourbon. We appreciate the support. If you subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it'll be a huge help. Thank you. Our director is Mark Mandel. Social media by Jennifer Powell of excellentwriters.com. Consulting producer is Helen Tierney of Happy Accident Productions. Audio editing and voiceover by yours truly. Special thanks to Mike Carruthers of somethingyoushouldknow.net. For Greg Stoller and the entire team, I'm executive producer Don Kelly. Happy New Year, and thanks for listening to The Language of Business.